Towards the end of this week's Parsha, the Ramban has what is not only one of the most famous passages in his commentary, it's actually one of the most famous and influential passages of any of the Rishonim in their commentary on the Chumash, not only because it's such a profound analysis, but because as a matter of Jewish philosophy, of Machshava, of Hashkafa, it's one of the key and significant texts that all subsequent Rishonim and certainly more recent and contemporary thinkers agree or disagree, but everyone contends with, and it influences the entire discourse. And the issue that I'm referring to is a discussion that the Ramban has in his commentary, Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Tetzayin, has a very, very lengthy treatment where he discusses the role of miracles generally, and specifically the role of the miracles of Yitzias Mitzrayim, the Ten Makos, of course, the plagues, which are the subject of last week and this week's Parshios, as well as, of course, ultimately, Kriyas Yamsuf. So the Ramban here is going to discuss the role of miracles generally, but specifically the miracles that make up the story of the exodus of Yitzias Mitzrayim. And specifically, he begins with the question of how come it seems that there's such a focus, one could even say a obsession in Judaism, with Zecher Litzias Mitzrayim. We're always trying to remember uh, the Exodus. There's so many mitzvos, not only the ones that are related to Pesach, but so many other mitzvos that we do throughout the year, which seemingly don't have any connection to the Pesach story. Things like mezuzah, tefillin, and the like, which according to the Torah are actually to help us remember and to remind us about Yitzias Mitzrayim. So why is that? And that's really what the Ramban is trying to address, and through that explain the role of miracles in general. So the Ramban says as follows. He says basically, over time, and certainly in earlier parts of history, there were a few basic uh, points that those who denied religious faith, and certainly Jewish faith, basic points that they were kofer bahem, that they denied. Says the Ramban, they, some denied the very existence of God itself, kofer b'ikar. Others acknowledged the existence of God, but were kofer b'yidiyato. They denied the fact that God knows what's happening in the world. Others acknowledged that God knows what's happening in the world, but they were kofer b'hashkacha. They denied that God is actually involved in the world in a way in which he would actually benefit those who do his will and punish those who don't. Schar onish, warden punishment. These are the three big uh, forms of heresy, says the Ramban, that were popular. And says the Ramban, the very existence of miracles comes to rebut those denials and those heresies. Says the Ramban, When Hashem intervenes in history, in the world, and performs a miracle, that itself shows that these heretical feelings and these denials are in fact incorrect. After all, if God can change nature, that shows that he's the boss, that he was the bore, only one who made the machine, so to speak, knows how to fix it or how to change the wiring. That acknowledges the, the existence of the reality of miracles, shows not only that there is a God, but the fact that he intervened in a certain situation shows that he knew what was going on in the world. And when he does a miracle, for example, for the Jewish people, that shows writ large that he decided to favor those who he wanted to favor. That shows the existence not only of the existence of God, the knowledge of God, but even hashkacha. 
Then the Ramban adds something very important, which is, and when, like happens in our Parsha and in last week's Parsha, when the particular miracles were predicted previously by a Navi, by a prophet, then Yispar Mimenu owed Amitas Hanavua, that itself introduces a fourth element, which is not only about the existence and nature of God, but the fact is that we see that there's a power called prophecy of Hashem speaking to human beings. And says the Ramban, that is incredibly important, because of course the entire premise of the Torah is that it was conveyed through Nevoah to Moshe and eventually to the Jewish people. So we need to establish not only the various parts about God, He exists, He knows, He cares, but also that he talks to human beings. Not too many of us, but he does at least sometimes. The reality of Nevuah. Based on this, the Ramban then goes on to the second part, which may even be the more important part of his discussion, which is his doctrine about miracles in general. And this is particularly uh, famous and uh, landmark, where the Ramban tells us uh, a term or uh, terminology which is now very commonplace, but as far as I know, he's the first one to use it, or certainly popularized it. Says the Ramban, there are actually two types of miracles. There's the Nisim Gluim, or what he calls Mephorsamim. Those are the miracles that you and I call a miracle, where Hashem breaks the laws of nature, Obviously, like the ten plagues, the makos, yitzias mitzrayim, and things like that. There's a certain expectation of the rules of nature, and God intervenes and breaks those rules and laws of nature. Wow, that's an obvious, apparent, revealed miracle. However, says Ramban, there's also what he calls and famously refers to as nisim nistarim, the hidden miracles. Says the Ramban, the very fact that there is laws of nature, not just that God breaks the laws, the very existence of the laws of nature is itself a miracle. Miracle being defined as, of course, God's active involvement and intervention in the world. That itself is a nisnister. And says the Ramban, not only does he think that there are hidden, quote-unquote, miracles, he says that a person must believe that everything that happens through nature and through science really is the active hand of God. He goes so far as to say, if you deny the phenomenon of hidden miracles, you have no portion in Torah's Moshe. You are yourself a heretic. And even further, he says, the whole purpose of the revealed miracles is to help reorient us and remind us of the hidden miracles. Shehem Yisod HaTorakula. In other words, says Ramban, the most important thing in Judaism is not Kriyas Yamsuf and the Makos and the, the thunder and light shows. The daily miracles through science, through nature, have Hashem quietly and subtly running the world, that's the basis of everything. Every now and then Hashem does a big miracle, like it's Yes Mitzrayim, which we have to remember because it's so important. But it's so important because it reminds us, not just about Mitzrayim, it reminds us that every day Hashem is involved in every part of our lives. The Jewish people are just about to leave Mitzrayim. They have one last thing to do before they embark on their journey to freedom. The Torah tells us in Perak Yubayi's Pasuk Lamed Hay that Uvenei Yisrael Asu Kedvar Moshe they did it at Moshe's behest Yishalumi Mitzrayim they asked the Egyptians Klechesev Klezahav Usmalot they asked the Egyptians for their silver, their gold and for their fine garments. Commenting on the words in the Pasuk that they did this at the behest of Moshe Rashi quotes the Pasuk earlier in Parshat Bo in Perak Yudalif when, when the Jewish people were still unfortunately being enslaved. They had not been given their freedom just yet. And there, in the beginning of Perak Yudal of Pasuk Bet, 
the Torah tells us, Hashem tells Moshe, you should tell the Jewish people that one day, you should speak to the Jewish people, and you should tell them, each person will ask his fellow, a woman will ask her fellow, for silver and for gold. And then the Pasuk continues, that Hashem will give you, give the Jewish people the merit of finding favor being in the eyes of the Egyptians, and then they will actually hopefully merit all that. And clearly what the assumption seems to be by Rashi, the way we've always read this Pasuk, is that this was the prediction, this was Hashem foreshadowing and forecasting what would eventually happen, that the Jewish people would ask the Egyptians for their wealth, and that the Egyptians would give it to them. However, the problem with this simple reading of the two psukim and the Rashi that combines them is as the uh, Vilna Gon asks in the collection Kol Eliyahu, if that's the case, what in the world is Rashi adding here in Parak Yudbet? The Pasuk already told us explicitly that the Jewish people did it because Moshe asked them. And then Rashi says yes, and Moshe asked them and quotes the Pasuk where Moshe is told to ask them. Like, so what? Like, what's the big deal? Why would Rashi need to tell us that? All Rashi does is quote a pasuk from a chapter earlier, which predicts that Moshe will ask them. But the Torah here in Perak Bet tells them that they did it because Moshe told them to do it. To Moshe asked them. So Rashi didn't add anything that wasn't already in the pasuk. Bothered by this seemingly innocent or technical question, the Vilna Gon suggests something which I think is not only brilliant and creative in the reading of the psukim, but also I think quite profound and has a timeless lesson for all of us. Says the Vilna Gon, perhaps what was bothering Rashi, and what really should bother all of us, is if we go back to that first Pasuk in Perak Aleph, where Hashem tells Moshe, and is seemingly forecasting and foreshadowing that the Jewish people will ask the Egyptians for their wealth, the Pasuk specifically says, Ish Esrei Ehu, a person will ask his fellow. The problem, says the Vilna Gon, is that Chazal have a tradition, it's quoted in the Gemara, in Masech Babakama, that the term Re'ehu, in Biblical Hebrew, in the Torah, Re'ehu, that term, is used exclusively for Jews and their fellow Jews. It cannot possibly refer to, says the Gemara, a non-Jew. Could be your neighbor, could be your friend, could be the best man or best woman in the world. It doesn't matter. Re'ehu is a term in the Torah that's used exclusively for Jews and, and their fellow Jews. Therefore, how do we understand the Pasuk? How could it be that that Pasuk was talking about the Jewish people asking the Egyptians for their wealth when they go out of Egypt, when that word, Re'ehu, doesn't refer to non-Jews, certainly didn't refer to the Egyptians? In light of this question, the Vilna Gon offers what, again, I suggest is a creative, brilliant, and stunning interpretation. He says, in fact, our whole lives, we've misread that Pasuk. That first Pasuk in Parakid Aleph is not talking about the Jewish people eventually asking the Egyptians for money. Rather, it's referring to the Jewish people borrowing and lending amongst themselves. Re'ehu, each Jew asked their fellow Jew when they needed something to lend a hand, and they did. They helped each other. And what we see from this, says the Vilna Gon, is something incredible. Despite the privation, despite the torture the Jewish people were experiencing at that point in Egypt, and despite the fact that under such circumstances, the natural instinct would be for self-preservation and to be selfish, says the Vilna Gon, Kafu et Yitzram, they overcame that instinct. They became selfless, even though every natural instinct would have told them to be selfish. Instead of just looking out for number one, they looked out for each other. And even though they may not have had a spare nickel or a spare blanket that they could really afford to give away, when they saw someone else who needed it even more than them, they did so. They helped each other. 
says the Vilna Gon, it was in the merit of that incredible, extraordinary act of selflessness. The fact that the first Jewish free loan societies, the first Jewish gamachs, were founded in Egypt when it never should have happened because they had nothing to give and whatever little they had, it's only natural to keep for yourself out of self-preservation. And it was Dafka there that they turned outward instead of inward to help each other. It was in that merit, says the Vilna Gon, that Hashem says, one day in the future when you'll ask the Egyptians for something astounding, please, on our way to freedom, can you give us all your wealth? Can you give us your silver and gold? And somehow incredibly, and yes, I dare say, miraculously, the Jewish people will say yes. In what way did we merit to deserve this incredible miracle? Says the Vilna Gon, that's what the Torah is telling us. Because we asked Esrei Ehu, we asked our fellow Jew, and they helped us in our time of need, therefore the very next Pasuk, Perak Yudalaf, Pasuk Gimel, tells us, that one day there will come a time when you'll ask the Egyptians and you will find favor in their eyes and they will give it to you. In the merit of helping each other, eventually Hashem promises you'll not only go free, but you'll go free with great wealth. Wow, what an amazing interpretation. If that's what was happening in the previous chapter in Perkid Aleph, says the Vilna Go, now we understand what is occurring in our Pasuk in chapter 12 in Perak Yud Bet. When the Pasuk said here that the Jewish people Asu Kidvar Moshe V'yish Alu Mi Mitzrayim that Pasuk in Yud Bet in chapter 12 is talking about when the Jewish people actually asked the Egyptians for their money. And incredibly the Egyptians said yes. Go, comes along Rashi and cites the Pasuk in the previous chapter, Perak Yud Aleph. We asked, it seems to not add anything. Says the Vilna Go, no, it adds everything. Rashi is telling us and highlighting, why would the Egyptians do this? Why would they give away their money? And the answer was, because of what happened in chapter 11 in Perak Yud Aleph, when the Jewish people helped each other. And the merit of that incredible selflessness, we merited this tremendous gift on our way out of Egypt, of this gift of the wealth of the Egyptians. The psukim in the beginning of Perak Yud Bet convey two very important mitzvos. Initially, the Perak speaks about the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh, the commandment to sanctify the new moon and the whole idea of a Jewish calendar and Rosh Chodesh, etc. And then, after having established that, and that this is the month of Nisan, the psukim continue with the command to the Jewish people to take uh, the little animal, the lamb or the goat, that will eventually be used for the Karban Pesach. Through a very close reading of some of the initial psukim in this parak, Chazal, in a number of places, highlight the incredible achtos, the unity, the love, and the mutual respect that Moshe and Aaron had for each other, and that ultimately HaKadosh Baruch Hu had for each of them, and for their relationship with each other. So, for example, right in the beginning of the parak, Yud Bet, Pasuk Aleph, Torah tells us, Hashem al Moshe, that Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, both of them together, in the land of Egypt, saying, and then the Pasuk continues in Pasuk Bet, etc., that this will be the new month for you at the beginning of the calendar. So Chazal are initially bothered, how come in this verse Hashem is speaking to both Moshe and Aaron? One of the most common phrases in the entire Torah is the Yomer Hashem el Moshe Lemor. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, here we have one of those rare times where Hashem is speaking 
to both Moshe and Aaron. Why does Aaron have to be mentioned? Why was this command specifically given to both Moshe and Aaron? This is a question that piques the interest of Chazal. So for example, in Shmos Rabbah, in Parsha Tezvav, Chazal suggests that this is highlighting a halachic point, that Kiddush HaChodesh, this mitzvah that is being described here of sanctifying the new moon, requires a bastin, a minimum of three judges, and therefore Hashem is saying to Moshe and Aaron, as it were, Ani ve'atem nekadesh es HaChodesh. You and I, you, the two of you, Moshe and Aaron, and I, Hashem, the three of us, we will, as it were, be the bastin, the court, if you will, of three, in order to sanctify the new month. It's interesting, as the Medrash itself elaborates, that very next Pasuk, which says, which generally would be translated as, for you, the Jewish people, but in light of this, the Medrash implies that it really means, to you, Moshe and Aaron, I'm giving to both of you, I'm giving over to you this mitzvah. And as we mentioned, for the Shmos Rava, for this Medrash, the reason is because it's highlighting and foreshadowing a halacha that you need actually three uh, dayanim, you need a basin in order to sanctify the new moon. That's one approach. However, I'm more interested in a different approach of Chazal. That suggested in the Medrash Tanchuma and cited briefly by Rashi. And that is, the Medrash tells us amazingly that initially, as it were, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was only going to tell this to Moshe. After all, as we said previously, most of the commandments Hashem only tells Moshe. However, the Medrash continues and says, here this is the first mitzvah being given to the Jewish people, right in the aftermath, in conjunction with all of the makos, all of the miracles that happened in Egypt, when, in fact, Aaron was a very, very uh, significant, if not even equal partner to Moshe. So the Medrash describes some kind of angel or divine force that comes over to God, and comes over to Hashem and says, how can you just give this halacha, this mitzvah to Moshe? What about all of Aaron's involvement in the plagues, etc.? That's not fair to Aaron, to which the Medrash <coughs> describes HaKadosh Baruch Hu replying and saying, in fact, you're right, you're right. Hashem says to this angel, Amla HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yafa limadit, notna. You're right, I accept your criticism. In fact, I will therefore give the mitzvah to both Moshe and Aaron. So with this reading in the second interpretation of the Tanchuma, in fact, this Pasuk highlights Hashem's appreciation for the, if not completely equal, but near equal and vitally important role that both brothers played. In the next Pasuk, in Parakid Bey's Pasuk Gimel, we have the Torah continuing with the details of the actual Karban Pesach, the first a sacrificial lamb, which we know became a mitzvah for all generations on Pesach. But of course, the initial one was when the Jewish people took this uh, little baby lamb, uh, which was the god of the Egyptians, sacrificed it, eventually uh, wiped the blood on the doorpost, etc., etc. So the Pasuk here says, Dabru el kol adas Yisrael lemor. Dabru in a plural. You, you in the plural, speak to the Jewish people and tell them that on the tenth of the month you will each person take uh, a celibias, this little lamb, this little baby animal. And here also Chazal are sensitive to the language. Why is it in the plural? Dabru el kaldas b'nei Yisrael. Why the plural? Presumably, seemingly referring to both Moshe and Aaron. Again, the question why Aaron is actively included in this. So one answer suggested by the Medrash Sechel Tov is that when Moshe would speak, only Moshe gave over this mitzvah, but Aaron was listening with such intent, intensity, with such attentiveness, so carefully, 
with a palpable awe for his brother, that it was really, says the Medrash, as if both were speaking. Uh, the Medrash doesn't say it exactly the, what, what I'll say now, but the way I understand this Medrash, maybe I'm embellishing, but the way I understand it is, if you were in the audience and you saw, who's the most impressive person in the audience? It's Aaron. If you are a regular average Jew and you see Aaron, none less than Aaron HaKoveh, you see Aaron listening so attentively, so respectfully, so intensively to Moshe, Aaron's posture and the way he was listening was itself a form of silent communication that basically endorsed everything Moshe was saying with such power that really the power and the importance of the mitzvah was conveyed not only by Moshe actively speaking, but by the way that Aaron was actively listening. And that is something that's really, really powerful to be sensitive to and amazing that Chazal noted it. However, I want to stress not that interpretation, but a second interpretation which fits with the theme I mentioned at the beginning, and that is of the mutual respect for the brothers. And here we have a medrash in the Mechilta that Rashi quotes, which is that, in fact, each brother gave deep honor and respect to the other one. And after Hashem told them the mitzvah, Moshe said to Aaron, no, you tell me, you explain it to me. Aaron said to Moshe, you do it. They both were doing it to each other, and as a result, the Jewish people learned of the mitzvah from a combined effort of the two of them. Mutual respect and love. The start of our Parsha, Moshe appears to Paro and once again tells him, you got to do it. The time has come. You have to let us leave. Shlach Avduni. Paro, finally broken and worn down by the difficulty of the previous plagues, is willing to let them go. And he asks, who's going to leave? So Moshe responds, everyone is going to leave, men and women, children and adults. And all of a sudden, Paro changes his mind. He gets angry and says, nope, only the men. What's going on here? Paro has already realized and come to that realization painfully, but he did realize that he needs to let them go to stop the plagues. If that's the case, what does he care so much about who goes? Women and children, men? If he, if he understands that he has to give Moshe and the Jewish God what they want in order to stop the plagues, and they want women, men, and children, everyone to go, what does he care? Why does he all of a sudden draw the line at only men? doesn't seem to make any sense. Moreover, if we read that Pesach carefully, the actual Pesach and the words of Paro to Moshe, we'll see something perhaps that's also fascinating and troubling and confusing. Perk Yud, Pesach Aleph. Paro says, L'chuna ha-gvarim. Only the men can go, Hashem, to worship your God. Because that's what you guys have asked for. And it seems like, if you think about it carefully, what Paro was saying is, if you've asked for permission to go on a religious pilgrimage, if this is really something that you're going to worship your God out in the desert, after all, Osa Atem that's what you asked for? Well, if that's the case, only men can do that. Only men worship God. What do women and children have to do with religious worship? Really? Since when did Paro become an expert in comparative religion? Paro's paskining that women can't uh, do mitzvot, that women can't go on this... Uh, Pilgrimage? Paro's decided that children can't come to shul? I mean, where does Paro get off telling us what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? So in order to answer these questions, I want to share with you a beautiful idea that is suggested by one of the leading contemporary Hasidic Rebbes and thinkers, the Tolna Rebbe of Yerushalayim, of Yitzhak Menachem Weinberg, in his beautiful collection of essays on the Parsha, Hema Yenachamuni. The Talmud Rebbe explains that in this discussion, this back and forth between Moshe and Paro is not just a debate about travel plans and logistics. It's not even a simple negotiation where each side is trying to get a better leverage for their position. But rather, 
It is a debate about fundamentally differing worldviews and different approaches to life and spirituality. A unique and defining difference between Judaism and other religions is how we relate to the physical world. Many, if not most, other religions see physicality, let alone physical pleasure, as a contradiction to the life of the spirit, something to be avoided, and when that's not possible, something to be overcome. Judaism sees it differently. The Kotzke Rebbe, the Talmud Rebbe quotes this, the Kotzke Rebbe has a famous teaching on a Pesach that we'll read in a few weeks, later in Sefer Shmos, Perch of Beis, where Hashem says, Anshei Kodesh Yuanli, you will be holy people to me. Says the Kotzker, here in a Pesach where Hashem is demanding something so exalted, not just to be observant, not to be moral and ethical, but to be Kodesh, we have to be holy. And what does Hashem say? Anshei Kodesh. Says the Kotzker, Hashem is saying, I don't want angels. I want human beings. I have enough angels up in heaven. What I want from you is to be on Kodesh, people who are fully living in this world, Anashim, on Kodesh, living in this world, part of this world. Yes, elevating the world, sanctifying the world, but in this world. I don't need angels. I want on Kodesh. Being part of the physical world is part of what it means to be holy from a Jewish perspective. There are a number of areas of halacha where we see this come out, both from our perspective, as well as in the contrast to uh, the way the non-Jewish people look at this very same question. Perhaps the best example, quotes the Tal Rebbe, is Yom Kippur. After all, Yom Kippur is the height of holiness. The holiest day of the year, the Kohen Gadol, the holiest person, must go into the Beis HaMikdash, and not only the Beis HaMikdash, but the holiest part of the Beis HaMikdash. We have a convergence of the highest levels of holiness, and yet there's a fascinating halacha that we learn in Yuma, in order for the Kohen Gadol to be appropriate and eligible for this exalted spiritual experience, he must be married. Married life is not something to run away from like it is in other religions, but rather here, it is a prerequisite. Married life, embracing and sanctifying a physical relationship is a prerequisite for the highest spiritual experience a person can have in Judaism, the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. Without that married life, without that physical relationship, you could be an angel maybe, but you won't be an Kodesh, a holy human being who is part, very much so, of the physical world, elevating it and sanctifying it. Another example where this contrast is very clear is in the laws of Karbanos. We have a halacha that non-Jews can bring sacrifices in the base of Migdash, but only in Ola, a type of carbon in which all of the meat of the sacrifice is burnt on the Mizbeach. However, a Shlomim, the type of carbon in which we split the meat in three ways, one part burnt on the Mizbeach, one part given to the Kohen who offered the sacrifice, and one part given to the owner of the carbon, that type of carbon non-Jews cannot bring. They can only bring an Ola. Says the Sfasemis, the Ger Rebbe, the reason is because this is deeply symbolic. It's very resonant. The Ola represents the idea that everything goes up to Hashem. That if you want to be spiritual, if you want to get close to Hashem, you can't leave anything in this world. You can't be part of this world. You have to give up everything and go to Hashem. It's all or nothing. That's perfectly symbolic for the way a non-Jew would look at spirituality. However, says the Sfasemis, the Shlomim, the idea that we have some to them is Beach, but some shared between the Kohen and the person who offered the Karbon, that is the perfect symbol of this fusion of the physical and the spiritual. Yes, some of it has to go up to Hashem, but some of it can be enjoyed in this world. The ability to elevate the physical, that is part of what makes Judaism unique, and that's why Jewish people can bring a Shlomim, but non-Jews can only bring an, an Ola.
Getting back to our Parsha, says the Tolna Rebbe with this background in mind, now we understand the back, for, the back and forth between Moshe and Paro. Paro could only understand the idea of men going to a religious retreat or pilgrimage. But for him, the women and children going was totally disqualifying, was inconceivable, because women and children represent the opposite of religion and spirituality. A man being married to a woman, being physical and intimate with her, producing children... He could not make sense of that as part of a worship of God, of a spiritual pilgrimage. But Moshe was insistent that everyone goes, because from a Jewish perspective, family life and all that it represents, including physicality, can and must be elevated and infused with spiritual significance. Moshe was laying down a marker, drawing a red line. From our perspective, it's Anshay Kodesh. We all go because the physical world can be elevated. At the end of this week's Parsha, we have some of the most famous references in the Torah to the mitzvah of Tzfilin. For example, Parak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Tess, we read, Reference to the Tzfilin Shal Yad, the Tzfilin Shal Rosh, that should be a sign on your arms, a memory between your eyes, which we understand from Torah Shabbat Peh, of course, to mean at the hairline, but parallel to, in between, your eyes, and that's a commemoration as the Apostle continues to the fact that Hashem took us out the Yad Chazakah from Eretz Mitzrayim. A few psukim later, the very last Apostle in our Parsha, Perek Tadzayin, Laos al Yadcha, Lototafos It should be a sign on your arm again, Lototafos The word Totafos is pretty much impossible to translate, uh, so I'm not going to get into it now, uh, but that reference is, of course, to the Tefillin Shel Rosh. And again, a reference to Kibachozek Yad Hotzianu Hashem Mitzrayim, a memory of commemoration of Hashem taking out of Mitzrayim. And to highlight a few of the halachos that relate to Tefillin, especially those that connect to the Psukim in our Parsha. For example, the halacha is brought down based on a Mechilta, the Medrash halacha in our Parsha, that these two mitzvos, that of Shalrosh and Shalyad, are in fact two mitzvos, not one, two separate mitzvos in the sense that. If you only can put on one, or if you only put on one, it's not ma'akev. You can fulfill the mitzvah of shalyad without shalrosh, and vice versa, shalrosh without shalyad. This is the halacha that is learned from our parsha, and in fact, the Torah Shalema suggests it's based on the fact that the word vahaya is in singular, lashon yachid, each one its own mitzvah. And this is in fact passed in the Gemara Masechta Menachos, in the Rishonim, and in the Shulchan Aruch. So that's one halacha we should be aware of. Every now and then you have a situation where a person either is missing one of the types of tefillin, or for example, if they have a cast or something on their arm, or for some reason they can't put on one of the tefillin, you should be aware that even if you can't do both, even one is fine. It's not ideal, but it's still a mitzvah. Number one. Number two, the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, and others uh, point out that there's no real indication in the Torah of the fact that the mitzvah is for only part of the day. Uh, there's discussions in general, although beyond the scope of today's brief shear, about the fact that we don't put on tefillin at night. There's a huge debate about in the discussion about holidays and Shabbos. But on a given day when there is a mitzvah of tefillin, there's no reason to think that it doesn't apply all day. And in fact, that is the psak of the Rambam in Perak Dalet of Hechos Tefillin, and the Shulchan Aruch brings this down as well in Orchayim Simen Lamed Zayin, that Tzarek the Rambam's language is, The mitzvah is to wear the tefillin all day. You should do your best to do that. The uh, interesting thing is, even though it's not mentioned in the Gemara in the affirmative way, one of the Achronim, the Lavush, he suggests 
on his own certain limudim for this. For example, from our parsha, the fact that it says ukishartem osam that implies kshira timidit that you should constantly have them. Or as the pasuk from our parsha, os al yadecha and zikaron beinecha says the lavosh an os and a zikaron. What's the point of having a symbol or a memorial, something to remind you, if it's only part of the day? It obviously implies, says the Lavush, Os v'zikaron tzrichin liot timidin. Obviously, it's supposed to remind you, it should be constant. And therefore, we see that really the mitzvah is to wear tzvillin all day. And in fact, many, many times in Shas, various Gemaras just take for granted and assume, just parenthetically, that the various Chachamim, Tanaim, Amoraim, were wearing tefillin all day, and often describe situations in which they have to take off the tefillin. But again, the just implicit, totally unremarkable assumption in many Gemaras is that people used to wear tefillin uh, all day. Some of the Achronim, including the Prima Godim and the Aruch HaShulchan, have a suffix, how to understand this. Is it that there is an absolute obligation, a chiv, to wear tefillin all day? Or... Is it that the chiyuv is just to wear tefillin even for a brief moment, but it would be an additional kiyum to wear the tefillin for the entire day? And in fact, the achronim conclude that the latter, that the second approach, is more correct. That really, even for a brief moment, you already yotze the obligation to wear tefillin, but there's a mitzvah min amuvchar. It is ideal, the more you do wear tefillin, the longer you to wear tefillin, it would be considered better. That's the prima gadam and the arach hashulchan. However... The Bir Halacha quotes from the Yeshua's Yaakov that seems to imply that there's an absolute chiyuv, if you can, to wear tefillin all day. Whether it's a chiyuv or just a kiyum, we are all familiar with the fact that that is not our practice. And already this is brought down in the Rishonim, and the Shachanach Paschen is this way, that our practice is in even pre-modern, let alone modern times, not to wear tefillin all day, but to limit it to davening. Where does that come from? Why is that the case? So the post can bring down that there's two concerns. One is that when you're wearing tefillin because of their kedusha, you need to have a guf naki. You can't have flatulence or anything else that would be inappropriate wearing tefillin. And we can't always control that if we're wearing tefillin all day. And number two is even more demanding. We're not allowed to have what's called hesachadas. We can't be doing or thinking about things which are very base, even if they're not prohibited, but they're just not elevated in a way that would be appropriate to have while you're wearing tefillin. And therefore, since most people cannot keep to such a high level all day, we limit the time that we wear tefillin just to when we're davening, because that's not such a long time anyway, plus we're already involved in a spiritual endeavor of tefillah, and therefore the assumption is that we can do our best to uh, avoid those problems of gufnaki and hesachadas, at least for the short period of davening. There is an interesting machlokes haposkim in the Shulchan Aruch. What if a person is really sure, really confident that they could keep their body clean and their mind clean a whole day? Would they be allowed to wear tefillin all day? So the Mugan Avram uh, rules very strongly that no. No one can make that assumption with any certainty and therefore you should not do it. And he quotes that there were some earlier opinions that said, and if you really, really think that you can are on such a high madrega, don't wear tefillin all day, but maybe you can put them back on at least for mincha. That's the opinion of the Magen Avram. However, both the Aruch HaShulchan and the Bir HaLacha seem to disagree. And they seem to hold that no, it's not typical, it's not going to be most people, but if a single individual really thinks that they can wear tefillin all day, then it would actually be permitted. And the Bir HaLacha quotes that this was in fact the position of the Vilna Gon. As is reported in the Maisa Rav, the Vilna Gon thinks it's absolutely permissible in Halavai, we should all be able to wear tefillin all day. Says the Vilna Gon, it's true that it's going to be rare and it might stick out, and might be a little arrogant to do so. So says the Vilna Gon, wear it in a quiet, private way, small sharosh, cover it. But as long as you do that, says the Vilna Gon, not a problem.
When the Jewish people leave Egypt, the Torah very famously tells us in Perak Yudbeis Pasuk Lamet Dalid of Ayisa Am Es Betzeko Terem Yechmatz. The people had to take their dough and run out of Egypt even before it had become leaven, even before the dough had had a chance to rise. They carried it Mishrosam Suros Bisam Losam. The leftovers they took bound up in their garments Al Shechmam. They carried it on their shoulders as they left Mitzrayim. And Rashi tells us that in fact the reason that they had to do so in such a rush was that the Egyptians The Egyptians said get out of here. They rushed them out. They told them you got to leave right away because they were in such panic and pressure because of all the firstborns who were dying. And therefore they said you got to get out right now. Leave immediately. As it turned out, that was even before the dough had had a chance to rise. And as Sitzei Chachamen comments on Rashi, it is clear, it is Meduyak, that in fact there was no prohibition for the Jewish people to leave Egypt with chametz. Rather, that is something that had to have come uh, independent of that. But in terms of the actual story and narrative, the reason they left without chametz, the reason they left before the dough had had a chance to rise, is because the Egyptians forced them to leave without delay. The great Musar master, the altar of Kelim in his Sefer, Chachma u Musar, wonders, given that obviously all of this is coming from Hashem, all of this is being choreographed up to the finest detail by the King of Kings, by Hashem Almighty, why would Hashem do so in such a way that required the people this hardship of having to leave even before their bread had had a chance to rise? If Hashem was choreographing any, everything anyway, couldn't He have done so in such a way that the Egyptians would have only uh, asked them to leave or permitted them to leave and pushed them to leave after the dough had already had a chance to rise when they would have nice fresh bread to take with them on the way? If it didn't happen the way, as the Torah testifies, presumably that was deliberate. And of course, if it's deliberate, that begs the question, why? Why would it be deemed somewhat critical to the story that the Jews leave in such a rush that the bread does not have a chance to rise? In order to answer this question, the altar suggests that this is connected to the teaching, the well-known teaching in the last chapter of Perkyavos of Pas B'melach Tochal, that in order for a person to acquire mastery of Torah, they have to be willing to have a very, very simple life with very minimal material pleasures, just a bread and salt, as the famous expression goes. And the altar explains that the pshat is not necessarily that every Jew must live a life of tremendous tsar, discomfort, and asceticism, but rather what the Perkyavos is telling us is acknowledging that there's a certain existential reality that a life that is dedicated to pursuing physicality and material pleasure is going to be incompatible with a life that is dedicated to pursuing Torah and more spiritual and idealistic aims. The Rambam, paraphrasing this and other Ma'amari Chazal in the third chapter of Hilchos Tama Torah, also elaborates on this point and explains that Torah will not be acquired, simply not possible to be acquired by someone who is only willing to learn with great idun, uh, with great comfort and indulgent physical conditions, but rather only rather in order for a person to truly learn and be successful in their Torah acquisition, a person has to be willing to go even without physical and material comfort. This is reminiscent of, it's not quoted by the uh, altar of Kelm, but it is reminiscent of a very powerful and famous statement made by Rabbeinu Bachaye in his Chavos Halavavos, Sha'ar Cheshbon HaNefesh, third chapter, Kasher lo yitchabru echad hamayim v'aish, just like fire and water cannot be contained in one mixture, they cannot mix. So too, in the heart of a human being, there simply is no place for a mixture of love of the physical, and love of the spiritual, love of this world, and love of the next. There is a certain existential, uh, mutual incompatibility between this love, this pursuit of physicality, and a pursuit and a love of spirituality. 
This being the case, uh, as a fact, and these sources are indicating this as a simple existential metaphysical fact, uh, the altar of Kelm wonders why, why should this be? And he suggests a somewhat uh, prosaic and musr, a message that we can learn from this. And he suggests that in general, uh, the source of all sin and infraction in the world is taiva, is desire, desire for all sorts of things that we might have. But, as he points out, and I think this is a penetrating insight of uh, many, uh, perhaps psychologists, but certainly the world of Musr, that desire is not a fixed reality. We sometimes feel that we are slaves to our desire. What can I do? I have this desire. I want this. But in fact, it's not the case. It may be the current reality, but it's not a fixed reality. The way taiva, the way desire works, is that the more you feed the desire, the hungrier you get, the more you want it. However, the more you starve yourself of that desire, if you think that that's appropriate, then, while it's certainly difficult in the beginning, but over time, the less you actually want that thing, the less you desire that particular uh, pleasure. Moreover, the flip side is also true, that the pleasure, or maybe better put, the satisfaction a person gets from being able to overcome one's taiva is actually far greater than the pleasure you would get from satisfying you know, one one-thousandth of that desire. We know that it's human nature, whatever the desire is, uh, as much as we have of it, we can never fully uh, satisfy it. So if you just, in a certain rational sense, says the altar, just compare apples to apples, the feeling of satisfaction and real deep pleasure that one gets from becoming a bigger person, knowing that you've overcome that challenge, overcome your taiva, versus, on the other hand, the actual pleasure you get from you know, feeding, even though it's a fraction of, but feeding that fraction of your desire, in fact, there's really no comparison. It's actually a greater sense of satisfaction and a greater sense of deeper, lasting pleasure to be actually be able to overcome uh, one's taivos. And this is presumably the deeper message of the teaching also from Perkyavos in the sixth chapter, Ein ben Choron Elamish Osek Betorah, that to be truly free, to be truly liberated uh, from one's desires, to be the master of one's desires and not the slave to them, one needs Torah, one needs that infusion of meaning in his or her life, because Torah is what gives us a certain perspective and strength to be able to uh, master our pleasures and not allow them, to, our desires, to master us. Uh, similarly, uh, says the altar, that is what is going on when Hashem decides to take the Jewish people out of Egypt before their bread can have a chance to rise. As if to say, or communicating them right at the dawn of our creation as a nation, that you shouldn't think that you're being taken out of Egypt, that you're being liberated, so you'll have a nice life of comfort and material uh, pleasure. Rather, you're being liberated not for a more pleasurable life, but for a more meaningful life. To be an Evid Hashem is far greater than being an Evid for Paro, even if it turns out that you have to have bread and salt and uh, unleavened bread and have a, uh, a lifetime of matzah. It would still be more meaningful and ultimately more pleasurable.